This is God's Eagle Ministries. At God's Eagle Ministries, we are seeding the nations with God's Word and God Himself is transforming lives through His timeless truth, one content at a time. Evangelism, discipleship, counseling, uh, healing, deliverance, restoration, and prayers without walls, borders, and denominations. My name is Ambassador Mandy Orojo Ogwe. And um, today we bring you episode 13, uh, sorry, episode 12 of our series on perfect relationship, 24 tools for building bridges to harmony and taking down walls of conflict in our relationships. And today's episode is Fixing You is Killing Me. More from two life stories. Firstly, a pastor and their unmarried pregnant daughter. And secondly, an addicted son and his Christian parent. In Christian parent and young adult relationships. The key was for you today, this January the 13th of um, 2023, and the key was for you today is relationship tools, relationship, relationship building. Building bridges, harmony, vengeance, prodigal, prodigal children, unwounded parents, observer, revenge, forgiveness, prodigal, young adult, conflict management, pain, stop pain, critical factors, episode 12, judgment, judge, stories, reconciliation, true story, restoration, redemption, inner healing, healing, New Year Resolutions, Year 2023, Fixing You, Fixing Me, Fixing Us, Abortion, Drug Addiction, Teenage Pregnancy, Moral uh, Kidnapping. Again, Friday, January the 13th, 2023, Otakada Content Count is 2,220,788. Before we go on, I would like us to pray and commit this session into God's hands. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your Father, Abba Father. Thank you for today. Thank you for yesterday. Thank you for 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, and some of us, maybe 100 years ago, even more, that are still here today. Thank you for storing, preserving, and keeping us even up to this day, and even for tomorrow, we thank you in advance take all the praise and honor in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the finished work upon the cross of Calvary that facilitated this contact with you, which we lost uh, in Adam and Eve. We give you all the praise again in the mighty name of Jesus. And so as I go into this session, I ask into this word, I ask Spirit of the living God uh, that you uh, bread life upon this content. Let it become living, active, and let it ride upon the wings of the Spirit to the four winds of the earth to as many that are hearing it right now into the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and bone and marrow that it will kickstart them to be all that you want them to be and to do in these times and seasons. In Jesus' name, Amen. Hello friends, I welcome you to episode 12. Uh, we are halfway to the end of this relationship series and um, we'll be taking a recess, a retreat period for about two weeks in prayer and fasting. 
then we'll continue from episode uh, 13 in, in two weeks thereabout afterwards. Today we bring you two stories. Firstly, a pastor, Reverend Wallace, and Mrs. Betsy, his wife, and their married pregnant daughter, Susan, who ran away from home and returned pregnant. And secondly, an addict son, Jeff, and his Christian parent, Phil, and Constance Fisher, that's the wife, uh, both Christian in Christian parent and young adult relationship. How was this relationship managed? What were the mistakes that you can avoid and what worked that you can deploy in your own life journey or someone who might be going through same or similar circumstances? And you might use the learning from this story to help them navigate the path. We have a set of questions at the end of each life story to help you in application in life scenarios where necessary. Last week, we explored episode 11, Be Observers and Not Judges, two true life stories, two wounded judgmental parents and their unruly prodigal children, Chris, Jenny, Jack, parent and child relationship. You can get the contact there, uh, the the content up on our website uh, if you do a search with the keywords there. All right, so let's, let's, uh, as we target unity in our churches, we are focusing on family because a Christian family is a church unit. When you take out the family unit, you don't have a church. A big church organization is a collection of smaller families, churches or fellowships. If the bigger church shuts down as a result of some internal conflict or persecution from the outside, the church split as a result of disagreement on doctrinal issues, everyone will return to their individual homes or families and continue church and continue church as usual. That was how the church in the book of Acts started and was sustained through the intense persecution they faced in their time. The smaller and scattered you are, the more difficult it is to silence the church. And as we race towards the end, that model will be what will stand the test of time because of the increase of persecution that will come against the organized church unit. And so if there is no unity within family, going to church to have unity is pure hypocrisy, pure and simple. In fact, the early apostles never picked any leader whose name, whose home is not together. That's how important the family unit is in the schemes of God. If you read 1 Timothy 3.5 to see the early church pattern, the appointment of leaders. Today, we're building franchise churches with leaders who have not gone through life storms, through the fairy line of raising families with all that comes along with family troubles. I'm not saying it is wrong to appoint young unmarried pastors to church leadership. What I'm saying is that pastoring is a call, and a call, and a call, and not a vocation. We must inquire from the Lord before we start posting people all over the place on the altar of expansion of branches or parishes. How can we, how can an inexperienced and an uncalled pastor keep the church together when conflicts arise if they are not called to that office? Conflict will always occur. No matter how small the grouping, may God grant us all wisdom in the selection process of leaders in our modern day church organizations in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I share the story of these two wounded families, I'd like us to, and their children, wounded by their children, I'd like us to discuss the main title in episode 12 today, which is Fixing You is Killing Me, to give us some groundwork to work on 
and some of the things you're going to be hearing is what we've been talking about in earlier series as well finding fault is a product of fear low self-worth and anger and why worry and this is jesus speaking now in matthew chapter 7 verse 3 to 5 and why worry about a speck in the eye of your of a brother when you have a board in your own should you say friend let me help you get that speck out of your eye when you can't even see because of the board in your own in your own hypocrite first get rid of the board then you can see to help your brother pain would have no opportunity in our lives if we lived in harmony with one another a social emotional relationship oriented beings we have no greater need in our lives than that of harmonious loving relationships yet relationship skills are emphasized very little in the church or the secular world as we develop intellectually they seem to fall further and further behind in their relational skills much of the emptiness in our society is a result of this tragic neglect money entertainment and technology can never replace the needs of relationship how to help how to help without fixing a major turning point in my life came when i realized i needed to live at peace with people for many years i had misguided compassion i cared about people and wanted to help them but my definition of helping people was to fix them in my misguided attempt to help i created much pain and conflict in my life and the lives of others i wanted peace but i thought love fixed people i soon found out that peace and fixing cannot coexist the fixer always finds himself being misunderstood as fixers we have all these good intentions after all we are doing it for their good right yet we are not valued and appreciated why jesus said in the passage quoted above that our attempts to fix others will be appreciated as much as our blindly sticking our fingers in a person's eye would be regardless of our motive we will simply cause pain jesus warned of the temptation to focus on the problems of others in matthew chapter 7 verse 3 to 5 above which we have just read the best thing i can do for you and your problem is to take care of me and my problems this is not a self-centered statement you see if i take care of me if i develop my heart to walk in love if i am able to bring the love of god to you in your time of trouble then i have provided you with a great service the moment i come to the place where i feel i can see your faults more clearly than i can see my, my own i have become a hypocrite strong concordance defines this word for hypocrite as an actor under an assumed character a stage player in this scenario, it seems the rule we are playing is God's. Love compels us to be vigilant and sensitive to the needs in the lives of others, but with a subtle twist of motivation, we can become more sensitive to the fault than to the need, you see. Needs are usually manifested through faults. Children say they are afraid by expressing their need. They usually manifest their fears by some negative behavior. Too often, we see the negative behavior and never recognize the need that is generating the behavior. Singer Dorothy Rambo said of Jesus, He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. Our warped definition of love and ministry compels us to get the splinter out of their eye. I don't know about you, but I don't want a blind person attempting to get anything out of my eye. I'm afraid that in the process, he or she will render me blind as well. 
That is exactly what happens when we attempt to fix others. We create pain in their lives and then they create pain in ours. Thus, the circle of pain and conflict is reinforced in yet another area of our lives. It is never our job to fix anyone. It is, however, our job to facilitate an environment in which God and people can work together to heal their every pain and thereby solve their every problem. In an environment of love and acceptance, people feel safe enough to address their issues. Our attempts to fix people usually put them in a defensive mode that lessens the likelihood that even God will be able to work in their lives. Focus on Jesus, not faults. How did we get into this circle in the first place? It all comes down to what we believe about God. It is our warped concept of God that justifies our hypocritical attempts to fix people. For example, we assume that God helps us by showing us our faults. But in Jeremiah 31, 34, God says, I'll forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. If God remembers our sins no more, then why and how would he remind us of them? When the scripture described the work of the Holy Spirit, it said that he will convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. John 16, 8. In the next phase, uh, verses, a uh, few verses, we discover what that means. In regard to sin, that is John 16, 9 to 11. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no more, no longer. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Not one time did the scripture say that he will point out our faults. Finding fault is not a work of the Holy Spirit. It is not a spiritual gift. It is neither inspired by God nor led by God. Finding fault is a product of fear, low self-worth and anger. It is a vain attempt to end pain by controlling and forcing others to change. It is a source of more conflict and lost love than almost any other factor. Our attempts to fix each other are killing us. The proof is obvious. Our attempts never work, but we refuse to consider the board in our own eye and continue to search for the sawdust in the eyes of others. Even when change truly is needed, transformation doesn't happen by focusing on what is wrong. Everything we know about human behavior tells us that people are transformed into whatever holds their attention. People who are focused on their faults never escape those faults. I repeat that. People who focused, focus on their faults never escape those faults. God wants you and I to know that the sin problem was settled by the finished work of Jesus. We are building on the finished work of Jesus. He wants you to know that through faith in that finished work, you can be empowered in God's righteousness to be who God says you and I are. Our call to follow Jesus is a call to a life that is focused on Him, what He is doing and where he is going. It should become the center of our entire lives. His love, acceptance and stability should make us the most confident, stable people in the world. In Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus promised that if we would yoke up with him, we would have a life that is easy and light. To yoke up requires sensitivity. It means we have to be sensitive and responsive to how Jesus is moving if our attention is on our problems or on the problems of others we will not be aware of how he desires to move in our lives. When he is not the focus, he is no longer the influence. I repeat that. When he is not the focus, he is no longer the influence. At this point, we do not move with him. Instead, we often move against him. When we attempt to fix people, we become the main obstacle, blocking God's walking in their lives. Despite all that God is doing to 
get us to see ourselves as new creations made righteous by the blood of Jesus, free from fear of wrath and judgment. We insist on keeping people focused on their faults. We insist that we can fix them. <laughs> when we insist on these things, we're actually asking people to give us a place in their lives that belongs only to God. This compulsion to pull the splinter out of everyone's eyes else eyes is based on our judgment. Since we know why people are the way they are, we are the ones who can see clearly to fix the problem. It is that very judgment that blinds us to reality and renders us unfit to be of any help to those who are hurting and struggling. It is this very mentality that causes us to inflict pain on others and provoke them into bringing pain and retaliation into our lives. Your life is influenced by what you focus your attention on. I repeat that. Your life, my life, your life, our lives are influenced by what we focus our attention on. If you will renew your mind, as we are instructed in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, to the truth of what God says about you and I, you will not, or I will not focus on the splinter in another's eye. Instead, you will be removing the ball from your own. The greatest service you can give to others is to take care of yourself. When you can see things clearly from God's perspective, you will always see that loving, accepting, encouraging, and nurturing are far superior to finding fault, condemning, and fixing. Now let's look at the first story. So I've laid the foundation about judging and how to address the fault in people. So I'm going to show you, uh, go through this story. It's a bit long, two stories. They are key to... Uh, build a block that we can work with, build on the foundation of a block that we can work with. Let's now look at our two stories today to help solidify our learning. The scripture says, out of the mouth of two witnesses, the truth or the word established for implementation in our own lives. Paraphrase. First story, the pastor's pregnant unmarried daughter, Reverend Wallace and Mrs. Betsy and their daughter, Suzanne. When your child goes astray, we parents can sometimes be incredibly ignorant about what goes on in the minds and lives of our children. There's a tendency for some parents to think that all is well, there are no problems and the family is fine, when in reality things are not going well at all. A child can leave a family and still be at home. The break can be moral or spiritual rather than physical. Shock of discovery. The Wallace family was moving from Arkansas to Colorado. The father, the Reverend Otto Wallace, had been invited to become the pastor of a young church in a fast-growing suburban community. The Wallace were traveling in two automobiles, hoping to arrive at their new home just before the moving van would pull into their new neighborhood. Reverend Wallace was driving the late car, accompanied by their 15-year-old son, Roger. Mrs. Wallace, as Betsy, was driving the second car with their 18-year-old daughter, Susan, a recent high school graduate. For several days, Betsy knew that Susan was troubled about something. The excitement of a new home in a beautiful state and a challenging church for dad made no difference. Susan had looked obviously depressed for several days. Moreover, she had been initiated occasionally during the past few weeks and was not eating well. Her response to Bessie's question was, oh, it's nothing. Bessie had assumed Susan's problem was that, that she had to leave her friends behind, especially Chuck, her boyfriend. However, halfway between Arkansas and Colorado, Susan decided she had to tell her mother the apparent truth. 
She was pregnant. She knew she could not hide her problem indefinitely. Bessie and Susan were driving just outside of Oklahoma City when Susan told her story. She and Chuck had been intimately involved for at least four months. She was probably two months pregnant. For the next several miles, Betsy was frozen in the shock of a staggering discovery. Questions flooded her mind. How can I help my daughter? Will she let me? How and when will I tell her father? What will Roger think? How will Susan's grandparents react? Or should they know? Then came a big question. How will we face a new congregation? Before long, the emotions flooded anger, fear, resentment, pain, compassion, self-pity, embarrassment, depression. Such situations happen more often than we realize, even to Christian parents. The situations and problems vary with each case. In one family decision may involve drug abuse, in another a misdemeanor or felony theft, in another alcohol use or abuse, in another homosexuality or premarital sexual relationship, in another arrest and possibly jail or prison. In another, chronic dishonesty or a runaway son or daughter throws the family into the crisis of not knowing for weeks or months where he or she might be. Other parents face a situation in which the son or daughter gradually stops attending church and starts associating with the wrong crowd. When parents discover that their children have gone morally or spiritually astray, that discovery comes as an emotional injury, an injury that is often deep and painful taken by surprise. For parents who have been loyal to what they consider to be the highest moral and religious values, the discovery that one of their children decided to break with one or more of those family values may come as a total surprise. Susan Wallace had been extremely active in her church youth program, mark that word, youth program, Sunday school, youth choir, and training classes. She appeared to be a model pastor's daughter, giving her parents very little trouble through her teen years. Susan was known as a fine, beautiful Christian girl, but Susan was also good at keeping secrets. She told her parents only what she wanted them to know. Her relationship with Chuck had been her first intense romance. She didn't want to lose him, but Chuck, Chuck was not active in church. Consequently, her relationship with him was, on, was only casual as far as her parents knew. The Wallace never imagined Susan would be sexually involved with this boy. There was a lot they did not know. When the complete story came out, Arthur and Betsy were taken by surprise as Arthur Wallace. They were stunned and in a state of shock for the next week. It is often the case for parents who assume naively that such things do not happen to Christian families. Moral kidnapping. The Wallaces felt that Susan had been morally kidnapped. They had not reared their children to behave immorally. Although sex was rarely discussed at home, the Wallaces had assumed that Susan would know better than to have sexual relationships, sexual relations outside of marriage. After all, the church took this position in some of his published literature some, somewhere. An author had even alluded to Christian sexual values in some sermons. Wasn't Susan listening? <laughs> the enemy was out there somewhere. Immediately and directly, the enemy was Chuck. After all, was he responsible? Was he responsible for Susan's pregnancy? Other segments of enemy's territory included the high school Susan attended and especially her peer group. The entire youth subculture tended to be sexually permissive. They kidnapped Susan.
parents may carelessly blame others outside their, their homes or the environment when their child goes astray. It is so easy and certainly less painful to see the cause of the problem as an invasion from without. Nevertheless, having a child go astray creates a helpless feeling. It's like having a child kidnapped. How do you get him or her back? Fighting for recovery. Shortly after the Wallaces moved into their new home, a physician confirmed Susan's pregnancy. She decided immediately to have an abortion. This would solve the problem for everyone, she thought, not realizing that one moral problem is compounded by another. By a long-distance telephone call, Chuck begged Susan not to abort the child but to come back. Then as soon as he could afford it, he would marry her. However, Susan desperately wanted to attend college and a baby would be inconvenient. Arthur and Betsy tried to advise Susan of her options. She could bear the baby to rear herself with or without Chuck. She could bear the baby to place for, uh, to place for adoption. Her parents could adopt the child or she could have an abortion. Any one of these options entails serious emotional consequences. The Wallaces left the decision to Susan, uh, Susan so that she can learn from that. Susan insisted on an abortion. In that case, Otto felt she should handle the expense from her own savings. This was one decision from which he would not bail her out. In a few days, Susan entered the hospital and had the abortion. Since Chuck kept calling and pleading with Susan to return to him, Arthur decided to find out more about this young man. An investigation revealed that Chuck was on, on probation for a felony theft. He had been in trouble with the police several times. Susan refused to believe that this mattered. <laughs> also, Chuck was supposedly enrolled in state college. His parents believed he was enrolled and regularly sent him money, which was his main support. Further investigation revealed he was not a student but only lived near the campus. During the weeks after the abortion, Susan and Chuck rekindled their romance with almost daily letters and long, expensive phone calls. Arthur and Bessie spent hours trying to persuade Susan not to return to Chuck. They did not know him, and what they knew of him, they did not like. He was not a Christian and lived by anything but Christian standards. Arthur became desperate to morally recover his kidnapped daughter. He tried to destroy Chuck's letters before he could see them. He made every effort to stop the phone calls. Wrong move indeed. One evening, Arthur took the phone away from Susan while she was talking to Chuck and verbally blasted the no-good bomb for all he had done to Susan and the Wallace family. Very wrong move indeed. Susan became hysterical, threatening suicide as she ran out of the front door and down the street in a driving rain. Arthur went after her and brought her home in a most depressed state of mind. In fighting for the recovery of their daughter from moral kidnapping, Arthur's and Bessie's tactics of desperation actually drove Susan to leave home and return to Arkansas. For the next two months, Susan left with Chuck, lived with Chuck at his apartment near the college campus. However, all did not go well with them. As soon as Chuck's money from home proved inadequate for two people, he told Susan, go back to her parents to go back to her parents and that as soon as he could get a job he would call for her to rejoin him susan returned home in disgrace and she never heard from chuck again it took susan almost two years to get over chuck's rejection the scar still remains the initial cover -up. 
The wife's first reaction to the news of Susan's pregnancy was to keep it a family secret. But this was impossible. A member of Arthur's parish was a nurse on duty in the hospital where Susan had the abortion. Another church member was a physician in the same hospital who saw Susan's records. What the Wallaces didn't know at the time was that both the nurse and the physician had had similar experience with their own children. Cover-ups usually close the door on sympathetic understanding and emotional support in such times of distress. When it was obvious to Wallaces that trying to keep their problem secret wouldn't really work, they chose to share their problem with a small circle of church leaders and their wives. The response was one of the genuine care and support. Some of the deacons had had similar, if not worse, difficulties with their children, sharing the pain brought healing, resenting the peer group's victory. One reflection the Wallaces could see that Susan had begun to drift away from the family's Christian value during high school when she chose a peer group outside her circle of friends from the church. Gradually, this group of five girls call them the famous five, became the most influential force in her life. Susan earnestly wanted to belong to a popular group of pairs. In order to be accepted by these girls, she conformed to their moral standard, which represented a thoroughly secular lifestyle, sex, profanity, alcohol, and excitement were the four major, were the four major ingredients in their lifestyle. Looking back, the Wallaces realized that Susan's spare group had su successfully converted her to a secular way of life. Susan's parents' initial reaction was to deeply resent this group. How is it possible for a small group of teenagers to undo in a few months what parents take years to build? Where does a peer group get its power to reverse a youth value system? For the Wallaces, Susan's peer group had become the enemy, almost without the Wallaces knowing it at the time, and the enemy had won baffled and confused. When parents lose a son or daughter to a moral lifestyle that opposes their own, the initial response is usually bafflement and confusion. Arthur and Betsy kept asking each other, how could this happen to us? What would make Susan do a thing like that, like this? Where did we go wrong? Parents often feel that they are doing their best under the circumstances when they, they rear their children. It isn't easy being parents today. It seems that previous generations knew more about how to rear their children than this generation does. The rules were clear-cut and definite. Everyone knew what was expected of them. Today, this is not so. In recent decades, parents have been offered a dozen different ways to rear children. There is a general confusion as to which method is best. Most of us choose an approach that seems best for us, which is usually similar to the way we were reared. Even then, we often fail, or so it seems. Why? Were we blindly inconsistent? Did we? Why? The questions are asking. Were we blindly inconsistent? Did we say one thing and do another? Were we short on love, short on discipline, short on communicating our values and religious convictions? In the midst of defeat, we rarely have the insight to know. All we know is that we are confused, puzzled, uh, puzzled, and have no solid answer. Maybe there aren't any. What difference? We reason. Would those answers make now? Where was God? For Christian parents, some of the disturbing yet inevitable questions are where was God? Why did he let this happen to us? Where did he let us down? Why did he let us down? Parents who have honestly tried to rear their children in a Christian home where, where church involvement is considered natural 
where Bible reading and prayer as much a part of family behavior as eating and sleeping, where love and discipline are fairly well balanced. Such parents have a difficult time when one of the children decides in both words and actions to leave the Christian faith. These parents truly feel betrayed by God. It was not easy for Arthur Wallace to preach his first sermon in his new church because it was the first time to preach after he learned about Susan's pregnancy. What message did he have from God, a God who let him down? The only comforting thought he could muster was a statement he recalled from a seminary professor's lecture many years before, a question from a father who lost his son in battle. Where was God when my boy was killed? And a friend was quoted as responding, He was there. He was where he was when his son died on the cross. It was then that Arthur hoped that something redemptive and beneficial would come out of Suzanne's situation. At that time, however, the possibility did not seem likely. The question still lingered. Where was God? Isn't God supposed to save us from such experience asking for help? When your son or daughter has gone astray, one of the worst things you can do is pull into your shell and hurt. Many of us believe that such problems are so personal that they aren't anyone else's business. We think that in time, we, hand, we can handle our own problems. We learn from our culture that we are supposed to be able to stand on our own feet. This attitude may be called a superman or wonder woman complex. What is wrong with this is that such an attitude is based on an unrealistic view of oneself and is stupid. There are no super people, including Christians. When you feel your family has been torpedoed, you need help. Asking for help, although at first a difficult step for many, can be the first movement towards recovery. The Wallaces turn to an inner circle of two deacons and their wives. This couple had had similar experiences with other children, with their children and functioned as an understanding support group. In addition, the Wallaces turned to a fellow pastor in another state who knew the family well. A three-day visit with him and his wife helped to put matters into proper perspective. Since Susan knew and trusted him, this family member, she was able to tell things to this friend which she could not tell her parents at the time. To ask for help is not only to acknowledge our humanity, but also to begin the desired healing process. God uses other people to assist in healing in the emotional realm, just as he does in the physical realm. The need for patience. The Wallaces had a long group ahead of them in regard to their relationship to Susan. It took several months to see any significant changes take place, either in Susan or in themselves. Sudden recovery, instant healing, or quick solutions are rare in the areas of value differences and relationships. Such matters take time. A particularly serious mistake made by many parents whose children go astray is this expressed lack of patience. We so often want everything to work out right immediately, or at least by the faith first of the month. But the reality of most situations work against this. Susan not only had chosen a boyfriend from a different background, she also had chosen to experiment with a different moral lifestyle from that of her parents and had found it fun, exciting, and pleasurable. In time, in time came the anguish of an abortion, the pain of rejection by shock, and the anger of her parents. Susan failed to realize that these were the result of her new lifestyle rather than the supposed poor choice of friends and behavior. Therefore, it would take time for her to see the difference. A great need for Arthur and Betsy, consequently, was patience. 
God has a way of working wonders if we will give him the room and the time to do it. His way for most modern parents, patience comes hard. We have a low tolerance of pain. We want instant relief. It took 10 years before Arthur and Bessie saw any positive result from their patience with Susan. 10 years, brothers and sisters. During these years, Susan floundered morally and spiritually, bouncing in and out of colleges and from one boyfriend to another, hitting bottom several times, even attempting suicide on one occasion. Funded by the grace of God, Susan reversed her life direction and answered to the many prayers of people. She returned to finish college, got a good job, and eventually met and married a wonderful man. Today, she has been happily married for over four years and serves as an office manager for a professional concern. The Lord took care of her even when she was in a far country questions for discussion for our first story what were your emotions when you first discovered one of your children going astray if susan number two if susan wallace had been your daughter what would you have done differently from what bessie Arthur did number three can you talk about your family situation with a small circle of friends from your church if not why not number four why does being a parent seem so difficult today number five do you feel that god has failed you your family situation if so can you describe your attitude second story from phil and constance fisher and their son jeff a parents shattered dream our culture teaches us to dream to plan for our children's future although our dreams may be somewhat unrealistic they are important to us and contain a degree of pleasure in the dreaming process itself however dreams can be shattered on the risk of reality things don't always turn out as we had hoped yet we are seldom prepared for this those early years phil and constance fisher were extremely pleased and proud when jeff was born their dreams for him included every possible ambition they took seriously the vows they made in church the Sunday Jeff was dedicated to the Lord on Parent and Child Dedication Day. Surely they dreamed he would they dreamed he would grow up to become an outstanding Christian person in whatever vocation he might choose for himself. They dreamed he would one day marry a Christian woman and discover the joys of his own Christian family. These were big dreams, covering many years. Maybe it would have been enough at first just to dream of the happy days that Jeff would experience as an infant, boy and young man before he left home. However, broad or long-range the dreams, it is normally normal for parents like the Fishers to aspire for noble goals for their children. Parents always desire that their children be healthy in both body and mind and that they stay that way as they grow up. Christian parents certainly dream of the day when each child accepts Jesus Christ as his own is our savior and continues growing in the knowledge of God, the Christian way of life. The years of fulfillment. In time, the Fishers saw many of their dreams for Chef come true. In his preschool years, he was a pleasant child who generally responded well to Phil and Constance. He received what most parents would have considered an adequate amount of love and attention. Moreover, it seemed that he responded well to the discipline of his parents. Jeff's grade school uh, years seemed fairly typical. There were a few problems at school, but nothing particularly serious or long-standing. He seemed to get along well with the other children and his schoolwork was above average. At age 10, Jeff made a profession of faith in his church 
was baptized and continued in all the activities that the church offered for the children his age. He would pray, he would pray at home along with all the other members of the family. He knew what is meant to own and regularly read his Bible. By the time Jeff reached junior high school, he was well on his way to fulfilling his parents' dreams for him. The official expectations of Jeff were being fairly well fulfilled even by the time he reached high school. There were a few disciplinary bombs along the way, but nothing serious, early signs of rebellion. Years later, the officials could look back on Jeff's development and see some early signs of rebellion. They could remember catching him lying about something, but this didn't happen very often. They could recall times when he would take something that didn't belong to him. This too was not a regular thing. The thing that bothered the officials the most was Jeff's growing independence. He had a mind of his own and could think for himself. This especially worried Phil when Jeff would not do exactly what he was told to do. Phil's reaction to Jeff's insubordination, Phil had been in the Marines, was often much harsh and extreme. Phil used his belt quite often, especially during Jeff's junior high school years. It seems that the officials failed to understand the natural process of a child growing up and cutting the cord with his or her parents. Although the cutting should be a gradual process, it does need to take place. It usually begins in the preteen years and accelerates through adolescence. There are two possible misdirections a child can go in this process of cutting the cords. One is for the cause to be caught too soon, either by irresponsible parents or by a stubborn, rebellious child. This process will be much like a student piloting, uh, pilot being sent up on his first solo flight so soon that he would likely end his flying career earlier than expected. The second possible misdirection is for parents to resist cutting the cause for as long as possible. This may produce either a rebellious child, both natural and cultural, tell him or her to cut the cord as soon as self-confidence allows, or an excessively dependent, anxious and fearful child who has no self-confidence. The uncut cord people as much a problem society as rebellious ones. The so-called early signs of rebellion may actually be expressions of the natural process of growing up, achieving independence and self-confidence. Officials later admitted that they failed to recognize this in Jeff and overreacted with harshness and anger. They felt they would lose control otherwise. The invasion of the peer group. The peer group usually emerges during the junior high school years, although it may appear early. This group of friends of about the same age, certainly from the same grade in school, comes into a person's life in an innocent process. It is normal for a boy or girl to want friends. During the preteen and teen years, the desire to belong becomes quite strong. The function of the peer group is to assist the youth to cut the cords of the family and achieve independence. The peer group actually becomes a temporary second family in competition with one's family of orientation, the family into which a person is born. The major problem with the peer group comes when it represents values and a lifestyle sharply opposed to and in conflict with those of one's family. Susan Wallace chose a peer group in high school that expressed moral values strongly in opposition to those of her family. Her peer group approved of illicit sexual relations, drinking alcoholic beverages, profanity, and a disrespectful attitude towards religion. This group's summum bonum was pleasure in the context of a thoroughly secular, non-religious lifestyle. 
Jeff Fisher also identified with his secular, pleasure-oriented peer group during his junior high years. In time, this group of boys began experimenting with drugs. In order for Jeff to be accepted, he had to conform to the group's behavior. One thing led to another as the pressure to belong mounted. Before long, Jeff was smoking pot and popping pills. If everybody in the peer group is doing it and you are not, then what's wrong with you? To be accepted, you have to conform. In his effort to achieve independence, Jeff discovered that he had become the unwitting victim of a new dependence, the peer group. Unfortunately, neither Susan's nor Jeff's church provided vital, attractive Christian peer groups. The secular, anti-Christian peer groups of the public school system had invaded the families of the Wallaces and the Fishers and had won other counter-influences. It would be a mistake to conclude that the peer group was the only threat to Susan's and Jeff's Christian upbringing. Other counter-influences had been at work slowly, subtly, yet effectively. Television is certainly a major force in the lives of today's children and youth. It has been estimated that by the time one reaches the age of 18 today, he or she has been exposed to more than 15,000 hours of television viewed since birth. In our day, you might find one, two or three channels at most and they usually will broadcast for six to eight hours at most. Not today. Today, it is 24 hours and an uncountable number of channels to choose from. <laughs> the effect of television on today's youth has without doubt been tremendous. Although television is not all bad from a Christian perspective, it has obviously presented alternative lifestyles and values for you to consider. Much of it of its secular influences have been subtle. Illicit sex, the use of alcohol, and even violence often have been presented with an attitude of approval. If parents quietly condone such presentation, youth may conclude that such practices are acceptable for them also. Magazines, books, and movies, along with the lyrics of youth-oriented music, certainly can convey messages that counter the Christian way of life. Many youth have accepted these secular messages as their own. Another influence that has adversely affected some youth who have regularly attended church is certain disappointment in the life of the church. During her high school years, Susan Wallace Church had a youth director who became sexually involved with one of the church teenagers. The exposure of his behavior played a major role in Susan's gradual disenchantment with the church. This sort of thing happens more often than church leaders prefer to admit. Although most youth survive such shocking news, some do not. It can be the final push out of the door toward another value system. When the dreams begin to disintegrate, when Constance Fisher was cleaning out a 15-year-old chef's chest of drawers one day and found a marijuana, marijuana cigarette, her early dreams for Jeff began to disintegrate. Was this just a teenage fling on Jeff's part? Was it merely the result of natural curiosity? Or did this signal something seriously wrong? Soon after Susan began dating shop, Betsy Wallace had found a container of contract contraceptive foam in Susan's room. In answers to her mother's question, Susan pleaded ignorance about how the container got there. She speculated that one of her girlfriends left it in room in the room as a joke. With Betsy, as with Constance, disturbing questions flooded her mind. Is Susan telling the truth? If not, how far has she really gone with shock? 
or is this just the result of a high school senior curiosity about such things? Could it be the signal of something more than just curiosity? There's a lot you don't know. Living with growing, <clears throat> active, curious, intelligent, and inquisitive teenagers often presents a major problem of trust versus distrust between parents and youth. Parents want to be able to trust their children. Distrust is a painful experience, yet many youth know that in their experimentation with life, in their testing of the moral limits of their family's values, if they tell their mothers or fathers everything they think or do, then they will be punished or restricted in their behavior. Rather than face such consequences, youth often choose to hide the facts and keep their secrets. Besides, parents cannot monitor all the thoughts and actions of their children. The best that parents can do is to be consistent in their own behavior as well as to trust their children to live up to the best they were taught. Even then, there's a lot you don't know about your children's behavior. Your only, rec your only recourse is to place your children in God's hands who loves them so much more than human parents could ever love. The chattering and his trauma. When Constance and Phil received a phone call from the police that 16-year-old Jeff had been arrested for possession of illegal drugs and was being detained at the police department, their dreams were thoroughly shattered. It was not the end of the world for fishers, but their dreams were broken on the hard rock of reality. When Bessie and Otto learned of Susan's pregnancy, their dreams also were shattered. In their long-laid plans to rear a wonderful Christian girl, in their effort to guide such a plan to fulfillment, something had gone wrong. It seemed that a whole devil of 18 years had failed. The trauma experienced by the Fishers and the Wallaces cannot be described in words. Only those couples who go through this know what it is. It's like the best that can be said by way of description is this. It hurts. It's hard. It's debilitating. There's no feeling quite like the feeling of parental failure. There we dream again. Both the Wallaces and the Fishers experience expected their children to grow up and be like them. Their earliest dreams were dreams patterned after their own experiences and ambitions. Their children didn't turn out that way. The dream were broken. Therefore, they wondered, there we dream again. It is natural for parents to want the best for their children, but the fact remains that our children are going to turn out to be what they want to be and not what we want them to be. This may be very different goals, uh, but children have their right to decide for themselves what they will become. This is hard for many parents to accept. They often feel that they have the age and experience to determine the direction their children should go. Yet people like the Wallaces and Fishers are learning that their personal examples of daily living are the best they can offer their children. If the moral values and religious beliefs of parents are in any sense superior, better or more meaningful than those of other people, then the children will have to discover this for themselves. This may mean discovery by way of experimental comparison of alternative lifestyle, painful as that something sometimes is. Getting worse before getting better. As you read this, you may be in the midst of a traumatic experience with your own son or daughter. You want and are seeking help. I hope these stories help you, but I want to warn you now. Things may get worse before they get better. You are going to need a lot of patience. You may need to radically change your usual approaches to your child. He or she may not be thoroughly testing the new and different lifestyle. Sometimes the testing has to run its course much like a virus. There may be days when you feel you can take it no more. 
a day when your son is sentenced by a court, a day when your daughter is suspended from school in April of her senior year of high school, a day when you haven't heard from your runaway daughter in more than four months and don't know whether she is dead or alive, or a day when your 16-year-old son is visited by your church youth minister and your son tells the minister to go to hell for no apparent reason other than that he doesn't want to attend church anymore. Yes, your situation may get worse before it gets better. But believe me, it can get better. Questions for you, this second part of the story. Can you describe the early hopes and dreams you had pertaining to your children's future? Number two, what were some of the early signs of your children's rebellion? Number three, are there any uncut court people in your family? Number four, why is the peer group such a powerful influence? Are there any Christian peer groups in your church? If not, can they be created? Number five, what would you do if you found something illegal or morally objectionable in your child's bedroom? Number six, how can parents prevent lying and distrust on the part of their children? Number seven, should wounded parents dare to dream again or should you be realistic and accept what comes? This brings us to uh, the end of today's series on Perfect Relationship 24 Tools for Building Bridges to Harmony and Taking Down Walls of Conflict in Our Relationships. Episode 12 is Fixing You is Killing Me. Find out how from two life stories, firstly a pastor and their married pregnant daughter and secondly an addicted son and his Christian parent, a Christian parent and young adult relationship. Questions for you. In reading and meditating on our post today, have you noticed something, some similar patterns in your own relationship that you may you would want, especially with your young one, your children, want us to discuss with the hope of dealing with these negative patterns. Please let us know. We'll be eager to help out. You can send us an email by info at otakada.org, O-T-A-K-A-D-A dot O-R-G. Uh, WhatsApp, SMS numbers, U.S. is 1-240-728-7276, and Nigeria, plus 234-803-283-5348. Both are WhatsApp, so you can do a voice recording, a video recording, or, or send a message and send it to us, and we'll look at it and discuss with you. Uh, shalom to you and your entire household. Stay out of pain and suffering by staying out of judgment, for judgment belongs to God. This is Ambassador Monday, where God's ego ministries, where we are seeding the nations with God's word, and God is transforming lives through His timeless truth. He's transforming lives by Himself, one content at a time. We're one in Christ Jesus, let's stay one. Evangelism, discipleship, counseling, healing, deliverance, restoration, and prayer without walls, borders, and denomination. You can get our content over 2 million of them at otakada.org, otakada.org, or shop.otakada.org for books and gifts. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his countenance to shine upon you brightly and give you peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. May he cause the line to fall for you in pleasant places. May he call the valleys to be raised, the mountains to be leveled, and the rough places to be smoothened to the place and the destiny that he has assigned and uh, given to you and your children and your household. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend in him. Bye-bye. 54 minutes recording. Take care. Bye-bye.